This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. On the, the 20th of January 2024, uh, at uh, 10.20 JST, a smart lander for investigating moon uh, landed on the moon. NASA is taking a huge leap to address challenges associated with supersonic air travel. One of those is reducing the disruptive sound to people on the ground caused by supersonic flight. NASA's Quest mission is the culmination of decades of research and is centered around a new aircraft called the X-59. New York campsites at prime viewing locations already booking up fast for this. And Governor Kathy Hochul's office says the Adirondacks, Finger Lakes, and western New York are the places to be to take in all the solar glory. All was well, that is, until Astrobotics noticed an issue on this first entirely commercial mission to the moon. The lander wasn't pointing in the right direction due to a possible failure in the propulsion system. Welcome to the other side of midnight, where every two weeks, our guide, our shepherd, in the exploration of everything that you just heard, everything involving air travel, space travel, anything celestial, anything cosmic, joins us to help break down... Cosmic Conversations, and I am very pleased uh, to welcome back Dr. Sky, uh, or I guess in some quarters he's known as uh, Steve Cates. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. Also a terrific podcaster. He hosts the Dr. Sky Experience. Steve, it's great to talk to you. Well, good morning, Frank. It's a privilege and honor to be back here again here and talking to you and all the listeners of this great radio show that you have and have been doing for so long. So thank you. Well, as it's the pleasure is uh, is all mine. You've been called by some, and I, I think there's only one way to take this, and that's complimentary, as the uh, the cousin Brucey of space talk, which I think wow. is uh, quite quite an, a quite a compliment. <laughs> compliment. That's all right. a high honor. Wow. It, it sure is. All right, let's get right into it. Uh, Japan 
has become the fifth nation in history to land on the surface of the moon. And to me, this really underscores the United States and our own inability to be able to have a manned mission to the moon, which we apparently have not been able to do in 50 years. What did Japan do? What's the kind of highlights of this Japan trip? Well, the Japanese space agency, JAXA, as we could refer to them, they obviously had great success, as we talked about previous into this month. We find out that this long-awaited mission to the moon, called Moon Sniper, that's their way of referring to it, actually made a soft landing in a crater area known as the Crater Shaoli on the surface of the moon. It's near a large three-parceled crater area, one called Theophilus, Cyrillus, and another crater called Katharina. These are craters, Frank, that you can see with the telescope. They were about 60 miles in diameter, the basins, but it landed in that central area of those three craters, a smaller area. But what's amazing about this mission is that the spacecraft allegedly landed on an angle, like on a slope, which is even more difficult. So this is actually a two-stage landing attempt. So think of it this way. As the spacecraft is coming down, a spacecraft that weighed over a ton, doing its uh, amazing thing with the thruster rockets that it has, but it was actually using something very interesting. What they've done before in the past by sending various missions to the moon, including the uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter here out in Arizona, the one that maps the moon literally down to like inches, if, if we can say that precisely, they used a technology called a software called Smart Eyes to guide the lander to a safe descent. But that seems to be the easy part technologically. The hard part is that we always talk about is landing successfully on the surface of the moon as we know, previous space missions, like the Russian Luna 25, well, they had the accelerator on, and their software and their whole algorithm got kind of mixed up. What happened to that spacecraft? It crashed. So what happened is we, we believe here is that the little lander made it to the surface of the moon, and it might have popped out two of these little probes. Right at the time, it was about two meters above the surface. What are they? Little LEV, LEV-1 and LEV-2. These are just two tiny little drones or little robotic spacecraft, like little rovers, calling that, if you want to call it that. And one of them was actually made, this is interesting, by one of the Japanese toy manufacturers called Tomy. And they actually made something in the 1980s, I believe, called Space Pets, that were like little robots for kids. So what we know now is that the spacecraft obviously is running on batteries. If it's, you know, batteries have died out, that's a very high possibility. But it's a great uh, achievement. They're the fifth nation to successfully soft land on the moon. And this is the beginning of what we hope to have as great exploration of the moon by many countries around the world, not only the United States, but uh, they've joined that fifth group of successfully landing on the surface of the moon. Under, the obviously, it is a great accomplishment whenever you can make it to the moon. That's yep. something. But are we, given the, it sounds like some of the difficulty that this uh, lunar rover is having now, are, are we actually going to learn anything new about the moon, what's on the moon, what's going on on the moon, given the limitations with everything that you just described? Well, absolutely. And there's something important about this mission. It has a very special big-eye camera, if we can call it that, a very high-resolution camera. And it's searching for a mineral on the surface of the moon, at least, you know, in image-wise, called olivine. And what's so special about olivine? Well, the Apollo astronauts that went there, Apollo 16, and also Apollo 17, found this strange orangey type of, you know, lunar rock. And why they're searching for that is they're looking to find out the answer to the big question. Where did the moon come from? 
And maybe, you know, when we were all in school, we were taught and probably, you know, we didn't know the difference. But the moon actually was birthed out of the Pacific Ocean, which is really not true. But when you're a kid, you know, that maybe seems like a logical path for somehow where the moon came from. But we think that another object came close to the, the Earth at a long time ago in Earth's history, maybe the size of Mars, hit the Earth and pulled out material. So they're trying to identify, you know, more evidence to prove that this particular object called the moon is not just a captured satellite. It may indeed have been something with an interaction with another body. And that's very interesting. But again, this is phenomenal. And I think the main point I wanted to emphasize to the listeners here as we talk cosmic conversations is that the difficulty of landing on the moon this is a very, very, uh, you know, very understatement of the hour here, very difficult process to do because you have to be able to maneuver in lunar gravity and be able to handle the thrusting, you know, the rocket itself. If you look at the Apollo missions, when we sent the lunar, you know, modules to the surface of the moon with astronauts, you may have noticed these small little nodules sticking out of the side of the lunar descent module. These are little thrusters. And when Neil and Buzz went to the surface of the moon with Apollo 11, you see in a lot of images, you know, the simulations, you see them firing these little rockets. So they have to stabilize this, you know, so you don't crash into the moon. And again, we're going to see a lot more with privatizing of missions to the moon. And the really big one is what we're waiting for with the future of Artemis. Mm. Like I said before, we have to hopefully take our time to do this. What, what's the big rush, I keep saying? I mean, we've been to the moon. We've done this first as a nation. I don't think there's the space race, if you want to call it that. Maybe militarily there is, but all I'm saying is that the rocket that will eventually land astronauts on the surface of the moon is the iteration of what Elon Musk is doing with the Starship. That's the object that's on top of that very large rocket. The uh, By the way, a lot of people already very eager to chat with you. 800-848-9222. If you have a question for Dr. Sky, we will get as many questions as we can throughout the hour. 800-848-9222. Uh, when it comes to the, um, you know, going to the moon and space travel in general, it seems like that we are sort of in a new age in excitement on this front, maybe the likes of which we really haven't seen since the late 60s, early 70s. Would you agree with that, or is that just me being a, a, a Star Trek geek? No, I think you're absolutely right, Frank, and I think many people out there would agree. You know, there was this big lull after the Apollo missions went to the moon. Of course, all of our resources in the American space program and maybe rightfully so. There could be a debate on that, and it would be great to hear what listeners have to say and the callers. But the point of the matter is the space shuttle took up a lot of our you know, monies to build us to getting into low-Earth orbit. But I believe you're right, and I agree totally. There's a lot of excitement about what's happening in the space program, particularly missions to the moon, manned missions we're talking about. And many people argue, and there's a good point to their argument. Some say on the left side or the right side, depending on – not politically, mm-hmm. but just opinion-wise – we should spend more money, many people believe, on just unmanned space probes to explore the universe. And then there's that complement of people, you know, good contingency, that do believe that manned exploration of the, you know, the moon and the planets is also important. But the excitement is really there, and, and I'm really happy for the children and the young, you know, the young students today. Look at the great future that they're going to have, and that's something that's, uh, I think, contagious, not only listening to what we're talking about, but just the whole concept in itself. All right, uh, let's begin with Bill in Huntington. Bill, what's your question for Dr. Sky? Uh, okay. Now, <clears throat> last month you said uh, you were talking about asteroid mining, that 
precious metals are just waiting for us. Yes, and uh, other people have said this, but, you know, I really, I don't understand why, because, you know, there's only traces of, of platinum or whatever in the earth, and they get concentrated in little veins by geologic processes. And, you know, the, the, the metallic meteorites, they're just nickel iron with nothing much else. Right. Most of them are, Bill, and good morning to you. Basically, the whole thing about, you know, mining these different asteroids, that's something way into the future, I would imagine. We're having a hard enough time figuring out, right, gentlemen, about how to even deflect an asteroid that was actually going to come to hit us. But there is some hope out there, and they're saying, this is what the people in the business world are even saying, and those are very keen to the area of space, that the first trillionaire who's ever that going to be on this particular planet, if it doesn't happen this year with high tech, could be those that invest in the future of space mining. And there are a lot of minerals out there. On the surface of the moon, Bill, just to remind everybody, you know, Harrison Schmidt, one of the last men to walk on the moon of Apollo 17, he said it rightfully so, that there's a helium isotope on the surface of the moon that if it were able to be mined and processed, could be actually used as a relatively safe fuel that people in the, not only here on the Earth, but other space explorers could benefit from. But, Bill, very good comment and very good point there, and thank you for being part of our show. Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. And, Steve, we've been counting down, and we're getting closer and closer to the upcoming eclipse. What's the story with the eclipse? What can you tell us about the eclipse? What are your plans for the eclipse? Well, we have a lot of things to talk about. New York State Governor Hochul has actually talked about this, and you know, the state itself, the state of New York, among many, just to highlight New York, is actually investing a lot of energy, that is, and doing these public programs for people to experience this. Because once again, April 8th, if you're just tuning in and haven't heard, one of the greatest total solar eclipses is going to grace the American, that is, the particularly continental United States, from way down and deep down in the south part of Texas and Hill Country, all the way up to the state of Maine and into Canada. So here's what's going on with that. That particular eclipse, without getting into too much detail, all these eclipses, Frank, are part of what we call Seros cycles. And this is something that the Greeks had figured out a long time ago, that every 18 years and change, we see repetitive cycles of these eclipses. So going back to local history here, we haven't seen a total solar eclipse in the United States since back in August of 2017. We got to see it from the area of Idaho, and I hope many people experienced it. But the one that's going to happen on April 8th will start off in Texas to be total, move its way up, of course, areas like the area of Arkansas, Missouri, down into the southern part of Illinois, moving up into Indiana, Ohio, gracing itself to, say, areas like Toledo and Buffalo, New York, and working its way up the Maritimes. But if you miss that one, the story about total solar eclipse in the United States, we're not going to see another one of these until August of 2045. And I know my birthday is on Tuesday, and I'll be 68. I'm uh, happy to say I feel healthy. But I don't know, Frank, uh, what about our plans for 2045? <laughs> but I've got a plan that we're going to do this, and, and this is very exciting. I've been asked to be the MC of an event that's going to take place in a little Texas hill country town. Maybe many people have been there, which, of course, is going to happen in a town called Junction, Texas, which so right off Interstate 10. And they're calling it the Tex Clips Music Festival. How about that? 
So they're going to have in a big rodeo arena, about 50, 60 acres, camping, RV. There's, uh, you know, small little cottages that people can rent, but they better do it soon. But I'm going to be uh, really excited to be down there because we get to see three minutes and 10 seconds of this eclipse. And as you move up the eclipse of totality path, Frank, this is interesting. But hopefully we'll talk more about it, of course, in our next and future cosmic conversations about how people need the proper solar glasses, how to prepare for this, and take any questions about that. Because one of the greatest of all eclipses happened. People can look into this, and I encourage them. On July the 29th, 1878, another total solar eclipse graced America. And at that time, Thomas Edison decided to travel west to the great state of Wyoming. And he, along with some very serious scientific observers and some people actually went above the clouds to Pikes Peak in Colorado. But that eclipse graced areas across the United States, even downtown Dallas. It was a spectacle that most people had never seen before. And uh, he himself, uh, Thomas Edison, tested out a device called the tessimeter. What's that? It's a device which he was looking to see if he could patent it to see how to record the energy coming off the sun in the infrared. What a genius, not just with light bulbs, but uh, imagine that. So the eclipse is exciting, and we'll be talking a lot about it. Absolutely. We're going to take a a quick break, and then we'll get right back to your phone calls with uh, Dr. Sky, Steve Cates, 800-848-9222. We'll continue straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Handling legal matters is stressful. So let the law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. provide you with the insightful counsel you deserve. The law offices of Frank Bruno Jr. has successfully handled thousands of cases for 25 plus years. They focus on elder law and estate planning, but are equipped to navigate you through all stages of family law and divorce to real estate law and probate. The law offices of Frank Bruno. Call 718-418-5000 or visit them at frankbrunolaw.com. That's frankbrunolaw.com. Frank Bruno. He's your numero uno. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thank you for listening. Every two weeks, we get to expand our mind and expand our imagination by not just having regular conversations, as we do every day, but... The Other Side of Midnight presents... From the spiral, to the elliptical, to the lenticular, to the irregular, to the quasars galaxies. Where are we in the cosmic evolutionary picture? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies. The following conversations are cosmic conversations with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Steve, I received a whole bunch of emails from listeners, friends, colleagues warning me that a solar storm this week 
could cause all sorts of uh, technical disruptions. Uh, radio frequencies might be interrupted. That obviously is a paramount concern to me. And there was even some news sources saying this was going to be the largest solar flare in seven years. Steve, remind us, if you can, what a solar storm or a solar flare is and what, if any, disruptions we can expect this week. Well, there's really two components of what we're talking about here. First is the visible white light flare. And we may not know, but we do now, that if you're lying out in the sun and you're trying to absorb the sun, you're using sunscreen, let's say, in a nice warm climate, the light that actually is coming out that hits your body is eight and a half minutes old by the speed of light. But what happens sometimes when these magnetic fields and sunspots really snap, and we're talking about you know, the power of hundreds of billions of hydrogen bombs in one isolated area, they literally, the magnetic fields, if you take your fingers and just interlace them and just bend them back and forth, Imagine if they were these powerful magnetic fields. So these flares are white light. And then a lot of times there's another part of this particular event called a coronal mass ejection. So it's like a giant shockwave of protons that move up through the solar atmosphere. Yes, the sun has an atmosphere called a corona. So when those big energy fields move out, the CMEs, as we call them, they take maybe 15 to 17 hours to get to the Earth. So last week, even though the sun was rather quiet and unusual for Sunspot Cycle 25, we found out that there was a couple of these small events taking place on the sun, maybe giving us this geomagnetic storm that we were thinking we were getting. But lo and behold, Frank, just yesterday, and we're talking about uh, here on Tuesday, the sun had two very interesting flares simultaneously happen, one in the northern hemisphere of the sun and one in the southern, kind of far apart, but they happened in, in what we call the sympathetic solar flare. This is very unusual. So they basically went off at the same time. So now they're going to send some energy directed toward us. We don't know for sure if it's going to be a massive one. Some say the flare was probably like that of what we call an M5, not in the X flare class. But it's interesting, the sun's seething with energy. All weather comes from the sun, as we say. So keep an eye peeled to the sky if you have dark skies for the event, which could be in northern latitudes, the beauty of the auroras, and unfortunately, like you mentioned before, radio absorption and the high-frequency radiation, you know, radio waves sometimes gives us a short-term radio blackout. Stephen is in Manhattan. Steve, what's your question for Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky? Yes, I am thrilled to speak with both of you. Thank you. And Thank you. Uh, I'm wondering, how would you opine on the issue, I believe in the cosmological side of the scale, sure. about limitlessness? Endlessness, eternity, infinity. How do you view those concepts? Well, Stephen, good morning. It's a very complicated subject here, and in the short time allowed, we know the universe is moving into something. What is it moving into? So we look at everything beyond that boundary of that big event, which we call the Big Bang or the Big Expansion, and nobody really understands what's beyond that. I mean, we have a hard enough time, gentlemen, even understanding what consciousness is and reality is, basically from our human brains. But I'm one of the firm believers, and I've just studied this. You know, I'm not an expert, nor am I an author on this. But I may sound like I'm repeating this, and I am. The great Stephen Hawking believed that the universe is a multiverse, meaning if you took sausages on a string and the little piece of material that connects the sausages are different universes. So what I really think is this particular universe that we live in is expanding into something. Who knows? Maybe it'll leak into another universe. But for right now... Really, Stephen, there's no understanding of what the limitlessness is. If you took the universe right. from edge to edge, 
it's alleged, and this is kind of a generalist answer here, this is what astronomers and cosmologists feel, that if you went from both sides, you know, from the expansion point when it started, maybe we're out to about 93 to 94 billion light years. That's a heck of a lot of distance to you and I, but the beat goes on. But thank you, Stephen, for a very interesting uh, query into what we really thank don't you. understand. Thank you. thank you, Stephen. Hey, uh, Steve, let me ask you about, uh, I, I've been fascinated by the developments with uh, AI. I just saw, just right before the show, that the U.S. Department of Defense plans to use artificial intelligence to develop more sophisticated autonomous weapons, including drones that need less human direction. Apparently the Navy brought swarms of air and sea drones to a recent military exercise and around the world militaries are increasingly turning to drones for reconnaissance and attack with ukraine alone deploying an estimated two hundred thousand last year now i hear about this steve and i get very nervous that we could be heading towards a terminator judgment day type of a future where these uh, whoever is the mind behind these weapons may decide to point them at the wrong people well, Frank, you're 100% right, and the whole conversation goes, what's the limitation that we need to put on, and hopefully soon, on the concept of AI? But let's start from the beginning here. We talk about Eric Schmidt, you know, the former uh, Google CEO, working now with a company, I believe it's called Astari, and what they're doing is they're developing war fighting systems and checking out, you know, different weapon systems to see how more efficiently they can work. But here's something really interesting. Think back, everybody, when you look at this I know there was kind of like this magnetic resistance between what the techno world and the military world. But guess what's happening right now? There's a new techno patriotism going on. And I gather, you know, can't blame people for wanting to make revenue, but I do have concerns about this. I mean, the whole industry here with the AI, you know, we're seeing more of these weapons. In other words, how quickly and you know more efficiently we can kill other people using drones. I mean, there was a couple of the movies out there and I forget the name of them right now, but you see this drone swarm coming after, like, the president and his, you know, entire entourage, and that's not really a fiction thing. Mm. I mean, we talk about weaponization of drones. I'm concerned about how the AI element gets in there. But on the positive side, we're looking at even beyond fifth and sixth generation, you know, military aircraft that we will probably see, if not already, pilotless military aircraft doing the different jobs that they have, sparing human lives, but the whole world turns into like what we saw in Terminator. Let's hope that Skynet doesn't get out of control. Right? And how, and how. 800-848-9222. Paulie is in Westwood. Hello, Paulie. Hey, Frank. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I love the show. Thank you. Love Good morning. Same. You guys best. Thank you. Thank you. I, I want to say for site. On other planets, do you think there are minerals like gold and emeralds or stuff like that? Yes, Paulie. I think it's uh, it's true. And you know, we know for a fact that on some of these asteroids and some of these objects like satellites of different planets, let's take a satellite around Saturn called Enceladus. We know that they have these things called cryovolcanoes. Wow, what the heck is that? Imagine looking at an active volcano, not in Hawaii. Instead of spouting out lava, it's spouting out, you know, big ice chunks, diamonds, and other precious materials from the internal core of these objects and planets. So I believe very strongly someday future space explorers, not in my lifetime, but, I mean, for the young growing up and even beyond that, maybe generations and maybe hundreds of years from now, they'll be going to these planetary systems. And, you know, ladies out there don't find it, you know, despairing when I say that a diamond that's a carrot or two, which is a beautiful love symbol, 
Imagine in the future finding diamonds that are 100 to 200 to 1,000 carats. Wow, that really rocks. So, yes, there are those opportunities out there. Their planetary systems are rich. Sorry there, Paulie? If I die, tell my wife to marry an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. There you go. Very but you got to You got to figure fun. out how expensive it be is to become an astronaut and look out the money you got to spend to get to the planet. Uh, that's very funny. Hey, Steve, this may sound silly, but I'm going to ask you about it anyway. Sure, Apparently, uh, there's a University of Kentucky chemistry professor by the name of Robert Lauder that's sending a message into deep space inviting aliens to visit Lexington, Kentucky. And apparently it's part of a tourism campaign announced last week that aims to capitalize on the recent resurgence of UFO fever following all the extraterrestrial hearings in Congress. So this encoded message sent to the star Trappist-1 included the chemical components for bourbon, and I'm a bourbon drinker, so I this is, I appreciated that. A recording of Lexington blues musician T.D. Young and the outlines of two horses and a human. But since Trappist-1 is 40 light years away, it'll likely take at least 80 years for the aliens to write back, which means, you know, they may not be at this year's Kentucky Derby. What are your <laughs> thoughts on this, not necessarily as a publicity stunt, but as a, a serious attempt to communicate with extraterrestrials? Well, Frank, it's a great question. And again, I'm going to tell you that we beat this gentleman doing this years ago, and I'll share that in a moment. But what he's doing, I find it fascinating. The love of my life, Diana, she's from Kentucky, and we spent time there in beautiful Lexington. So what they're doing there is kind of cool to send the images of what the bluegrass and the whole different thing. But the Cabourbon, if you drive on those interstates, every exit has some sort of a distillery that you can go to. So careful, don't drink and drive. But what they're doing is they're sending out this laser, laser system, of like, like a message, coded message, to Trappist-1. It's a star system about 40 light years away that has seven identifiable objects around it. Maybe one of them, of that seven, is potentially Earth-like, and they're going to be looking at that. So that's interesting what they're doing, not necessarily just publicity. I think it's cool, but how we kind of scooped this, Frank, years ago, I was honored to do this with the late U Downs. And he and I went into one of the studios, the ABC studio in Phoenix, and we were asked to do this, something called a cosmic call. And I thought they were kidding when they said this, but this was serious. They had us sitting there. I did the intro, you know, on on camera, of course. And, of course, the legend himself did the message about saying greetings from the planet Earth. And where did it go, Frank? It went out on one of the largest Mm. radio telescopes in the Ukraine, and it's headed out into space. Now, sadly, Mr. Downs has passed on. But I'm kind of concerned that if the aliens do find that uh, message, I guess I'm going to be hunted down, but hopefully in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> Robert is in Suffolk. Hi, Robert. Hi, Frank and uh, Steve. I don't hear these people. Are there amateur radio astronomers? You know, they are. There are, excuse me. And it's something you don't hear a lot about. You're right. Because anybody who has a ham license, you know, friends of mine always encourage me to do this, but I've got to be honest with everybody always here, and I will. During the early 1980s, I remember being in New York, and I was going to take the license, and he had to do code. Oh, I was terrible at that. But the point is, there are many amateur radio astronomers out there, and what they actually are able to do, this is kind of cool. I don't know the technology they use or the type of frequencies, but you're able to listen to the lightning and, and energy coming off of Jupiter, you can monitor that. 
And they're obviously also listening for what they had the great Nobel Prize when they listened to the galactic hiss out there, you know, that permeates the universe. So there are uh, amateur radio people out there. Uh, it's not as big, of course, as the, quote, amateur astronomy community. I guess they tend to like the light side of it instead of the radio side. But so, it's uh, Steve, just to piggyback on Robert's question, which I think is a good one, what would that look like? How would an amateur radio astronomer go about amateur radio astronomy? Very good, and I'm not one, but I can tell you friends of mine that are. They have these gigantic antennas called Yankee antennas. Maybe you've noticed in neighborhoods where you see somebody's house, and they have this gigantic antenna called a beam antenna. It has like a big, you crank the thing up or it's motorized, and it goes up maybe 100 feet. But the problem is if you live in an HOA area, a lot of the HOAs say, oh, my gosh, take that thing down. What's it doing? But the point is these radio frequencies that people are listening to, somewhat in the low megahertz area, where you're really listening for the galactic uh, hiss is around 1,420 megahertz, because that's where the hydrogen atom kind of, you know, oscillates, and you can hear different things in the universe. But, you know, that, that's an amazing thing. And I imagine it's relatively, uh, well, it probably is pretty expensive to set up a giant array like that. So I hope in the meantime, people are not just doing the radio astronomy, but trying to reach the Antarctic station. And, you know, they have these things called QSL cards. I think they still do that, where you try to reach radio stations around the world and kind of collect these little tokens Mm. in the form of QSL cards. All right. uh, We've been seeing some fascinating images coming back from the James Webb Space Telescope. But if uh, people have telescopes on this planet or just a pair of binoculars or even just the naked eye, what can we look forward to seeing in the coming weeks? Well, Frank, great question. As always, the live sky, as we call it. Here's my recommendation. As the moon goes to full, it'll occur on the 25th. That is the full wolf moon, the first moon, of course, of this new year, 2024, and many, many more to come. But if you look into the southeast sky, this is fascinating. We just did a program here in Arizona the other night. If you look into the southeast sky by around 8 or 9 p.m., the most brilliant of all the stars in the nighttime sky is a star called Sirius. Seriously, no pun intended. It's 8.6 light years away. And why this star is so amazing This particular star, when you translate it, it means the scorcher. And there's been rumors about this star. It appears blue to your eye, but it's about twice the power or energy of what our star, the sun, Mm. is. But it's an interesting binary system because large, really large telescopes, you get to see this most amazing thing, albeit difficult. It's called Sirius B. So they call that the dog star, Sirius, and the little companion that's around it, the pup, Sirius B. It's a tiny dwarf star. It'll have this about the size of the Earth, and if you were to get close enough to it and you had a teaspoon or a tablespoon, and you could scoop up in the physics world a tablespoon or a spoonful of that material. I know this sounds unbelievable this early in the morning or any time of day or night. It would weigh as much as, say, a giant aircraft carrier or a big, gigantic skyscraper because of the compressed material that's in that. It's otherworldly. It goes off the charts. That's a beautiful star to watch, and even in their most simplistic way. Stars, and I get in trouble with this, you know, with my love of my life when I tell her stars don't twinkle. But if I'm in an audience of children and maybe a lot of females, yes, all stars do twinkle. But the atmosphere makes the star look like it's twinkling. But Sirius is a beautiful object to see. The Egyptians, Frank, actually were using that star in the development and building of the pyramids and also to regulate their growth seasons during the summer. David, what's your question for Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Skye? The uh, sun sits in one spot, rises in the east, sets to the west. 
or is it that the earth turns from the west to the east, creating the illusion? Yes, sir, you're absolutely right. You you get the prize if there was one for the hour, because you're right, David. We see the sun rising in the east. We take it for granted, I'm sure. We go about our busy lives, and it does go to the west. Now, many people will think, wow, why is that sun moving in that direction? You're right. The earth is turning from the west to the east, and the speed of which that earth is rotating is different at different latitudes. It's fastest at the equator, and if you were right next to the poles, it would almost be a simple no-turn or a very minimal turn. So you're absolutely right. And on the planet Venus, not to confuse everyone, what happens there is Venus's day is longer than its year. Imagine this. The weather forecast for, for Venus would be like this. Today, 920 degrees Fahrenheit. Tomorrow, 920 degrees Fahrenheit. And what would happen, David, this is interesting. The sun on Venus would rise in the west, and it would go across the sky in about 240-plus days for one of what we consider a day seeing our sun move from the east to the west. Amazing, because Venus turns backwards. We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in a moment. If you have questions, we have three open lines. We'll try and get to you. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. We have our own eye in the sky, but he's right here on the ground with us. But he is our guide to what's in the sky. That's why we call him Dr. Sky. And if you're interested in any of the subjects that we're talking about today, do yourself a favor and subscribe to the Dr. Sky experience. You can search it on any podcast app or just go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Search Dr. Sky. It comes right up. There's some great discussions on there, great interviews, and even a lot of content that goes beyond uh, the the cosmos, some really interesting stuff. Hey, Steve, uh, where are we on NASA and their development of the supersonic jet? Given all the problems that Boeing seems to be having lately, it seems like we could use a new space supplier of uh, airplanes of some sort. Well, we have a story here that's quite interesting in the aircraft vernacular. We call this the X-59. And it's a project that's also a joint project that Lockheed Martin is working with the Skunk Works. Now, who are the Skunk Works? For the longest time, this particular so-called secret organization of Lockheed has been developing over the course of maybe the last 50 or 60 years some of the most incredibly fast aircraft ever. 
started off with other projects, but the A-12 was the single-seat aircraft that looked like the SR-71. It's actually the single-seater, as I mentioned, and then the SR-71. But right now, the big problem is, in the 1960s, there was a project that Boeing had and other aircraft companies that were looking to develop the supersonic transport. And many people may, of course, know about the Concorde. And you may be wondering and scratching your head, folks, thinking, well, hey, wait a minute, why didn't the Concorde fly regular, you know, airline passenger service from, say, New York to Los Angeles. Well, it would have defeated the whole purpose because it was, it is, you know, in its history, a supersonic aircraft. So now they're developing something with this particular X-59 Quest, as they're calling it. They're looking to find ways to develop low-yield supersonic, uh, you know, sound barrier things. And what does that mean? It means that they're looking to be able to mitigate these sound, you know, blasts that come from supersonic shockwaves. And it looks like this aircraft, if you take a look at it and Google the X-59, it looks otherworldly. It looks like it has a needle nose on it, extremely long. But they're doing tests right now so that hopefully in the future we can get not only private, you know, corporate aircraft to be able to do this. You know, I know there was an aircraft in the private jet world like the Cessna X, I guess it was called. And it was almost an aircraft that I think could approach the speed of sound. But don't do that because if you're flying over populated areas, that's going to do something really strange. The only time I ever heard a supersonic, you know, a sonic boom, we were on an aircraft carrier, the USS Carl Vinson, out at sea. We were invited there. And there, out in the ocean, they took one of their F-18s and it flew it right along almost at the level of the deck of the aircraft carrier at supersonic. And Frank, my brother has a picture, he's the photographer in the family, of the aircraft going through this, like, shock wave, and you see the moisture around it, like this big cone, as it's breaking the sound barrier. But this particular aircraft hopefully will lend to a way that in the future we'll be able to have supersonic travel without the big booms. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Steve in California. Hi, Steve. Hi, Frank. I'm not going to exploit my political stuff here, but I want to talk about Good morning. Uh, something I saw, and then I want to ask a question about sure. uh, the Central Valley and the Sea of Cortez. When I was 12, and I found somebody finally who saw the same thing. He was in North Carolina. I was in North uh, Northern California, I was about 12, but this is 1966 about. And no sooner did I settle into my sleeping bag and look up at the sky in my backyard when a asteroid the size of Mount Shasta missed us by only 3,000 miles. It lit up a sixth of the sky. It went from California to Hawaii in about two seconds. Yes. That fast. Wow. Incredible. Now, my, my question is, my question is this. now, and, and it looked curdling orange and yellow, not just white. I mm-hmm. saw it. And someone else saw it, too. But anyway, my question is this. The Central Valley, I now suspect, is a divot from a like, a similar-sized asteroid. It would explain the gold deposits near Paradise, California. And it would explain if it bounced over the L.A. mountains and landed over there by Mexico, it would explain that Sea of Cortez that separates Baja from mm-hmm. Uh, Mexico. Yes. Now, do you think that's a possibility? It could be, but I. But I, here's what I would do personally, if you'd like. And this is a public email that I use. I'd love to hear more about this if you give me the specifics on it. And my email is okay, simply I, this. I, 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 you go I ahead. can tell you exactly. It, it happened at nine o'clock on California time, PM. Okay. And it, it it went from from Northern California to Hawaii trajectory, almost hit us. Didn't make a sound. And if I blinked, I'd have missed it. But it was as big as Mount Shasta. And wow. so it, it seems to me that the Central Valley could have been a divot from a glancing blow. Yeah. It could have skipped over the mountains and then landed in the 
Mexico area and carved out that strait between uh, Mexico and Baja, and it would explain the gold deposits near Paradise. Where it All right, Steve, let me get uh, Dr. Skye to uh, comment well, and weigh in. Go ahead. What I was going to say, and by the way, this is for anybody out there that has a question they'd like to answer, just DR, DR Sky Show, Dr. Sky Show at gmail.com. But, Steve, what Steve's referring to is I doubt very seriously, unless we have a definitive you know, calendar date and he's describing this in more detail, I'd need to know more. I doubt very much if that one object could lay down all those mineral deposits in a short period of time. Maybe something over millions of years ago is more than likely. But we would have to know. My, my guess, and just taking a quick stab at this, is that you're seeing some sort of an asteroid body like a gigantic fireball that comes over the, you know, over the ground. But we need to know more dates, times, locations, the whole nine yards, in order to at least give a better answer than from what we've heard as the evidence. I understand we discovered a new planet. That's exciting. Well, absolutely, and we do have something here to talk about. You know, if you look out into space, we find now that we're looking about over 5,500, Frank, exoplanets. And one of the most bizarre ones of all is something we're seeing is like the Earth was millions, maybe billions of years ago. We're seeing a partially lava-like planet. And that's amazing because what we're seeing then, it's obviously not inhabited, but in this one, who knows, maybe there's other life forms that love heat. But in this particular case, the beat goes on with extra exoplanets, one that's half of its you know, hemisphere is in the state of lava. And that's quite fascinating because it shows us one thing, that the evolution for planetary objects is not over because now we're seeing something in which one is actually under development. Fascinating. Absolutely. E. Frank is in Astoria. Hi, E. Frank. Yes, uh, hi, Frank. Uh, I just want to ask uh, Dr. Sky something sure. that is, I've been wanting to ask him for several months now. It's uh, in regards to the sun. But I just want to say I did enjoy, I always, all my life wanted to see a solar eclipse, and I got the opportunity to see it in 2017. Awesome. But, yeah, and, you know, I I usually travel from Guayaquil, Ecuador, to uh, Jamaica Bay Refuge and John Fitzgerald Kennedy International Airport, and I noticed something that is bothering me. I noticed that the the sun, the, the flares in the sun, for some reason it seems like in the last 20 or 30 years there's something wrong where uh, the at, at sunrise and sunset it comes at different hours. And when I look at the sun, it seems like the, it's diminishing in, in energy. And I was just, I wanted to ask you, Dr. Sky, do you believe that because of the Earth's axis uh, that maybe the, the sun is lowering in temperature or you believe that the sun is increasing in temperature as we go f- year after year now in the 21st century? Because when I was a child, I never saw something of, of this thing. All righty, Frank, let me get uh, Steve No, no this in. is very interesting what you're bringing up here, Frank, and, and I just wanted to respond this way. We do not know specifically right now, if we look at the sun today and tomorrow, we can't say that the sun is diminishing in its output of power Let's hope not, because that could be a very disastrous thing for the Earth, not to alarm people, over a longer period of time. But no, the sun has gone through these you know, big cycles. Maybe they're 500, 1,000, maybe even 10,000 years. But for right now, I can't say that there's any amount of energy, light, or heat coming from the sun that's diminishing. Because some people were trying to use that as a conduit to say, well, the sun's changing in its output, so it's either increasing, unless that's why we have global heating, global warming, or the corollary on the opposite side is that it's cooling and that we have, or less output, we have global cooling. 
Nothing of the kind right now. That's over longer cycles. Nothing that I can report to you that's changing. And that's a good news for now. Uh, Steve, we've spoken a lot over the years about uh, space junk and space pollution. Uh, I understand that there's this uh, new uh, space, there's this uh, new attempt by a startup to develop a ground-based laser system to zap space junk. Now, you think about that, it almost sounds like the stuff of science fiction. Do you view this as something that's uh, realistic and practical in our lifetime, to zap space junk with a laser from Earth? Well, I'd be a little careful about that. I mean, whoever has that on the board, I mean, hopefully they got some good investors and a good, you know, a bunch of money to, to you know, do this. But be careful, in my opinion, is this. What you're doing is you're disintegrating things in the heavens. That means in upper atmosphere or in space, let's say, in space, lower Earth orbit. I would find that to be somewhat dangerous. But if you're looking at a big, giant spacecraft coming down like the space station and you could break it apart, well, that sounds good in theory. But then you'll have the problematic thing like a shotgun blast of a bunch of stuff coming down, you know, all different ways, uncontrollable. So I'd be kind of concerned about that, but certainly want to look into it and uh, be happy to talk more about it when we find out more about what their real intention is. Apparently NASA is also looking for people who want to be burst chasers. And uh, this is apparently a way for everyday people, ordinary folks, to help uh, Chakes, cosmic bursts, gamma ray bursts. What do we know about this, Steve? Well, it's interesting. I don't have the direct link here, but what it is, it's a project like NASA has many projects called Citizen Science, and I think that's great. I salute them for this. In this particular case, average people like ourselves can sit at home at our computer. There's so much data coming in, and they want you to be able to analyze images and look for changes. And in this particular case, gamma ray bursts, which are some of the most unbelievably powerful things from the universe. If you think of solar flare, is powerful. Imagine the energy coming off of a solar flare. That could be considered to be as much energy as a galaxy would put out in maybe a, you know, a period of measured time in a fraction of a second. So this project that NASA is doing, among other things like that, for citizen science, I don't have the direct link, but people can Google that, I'm sure, and sign up. For those that have a lot of you know spare time on their hands or just want to get involved, I think it's a great way to participate. Absolutely. We've been talking with uh, Steve Cates for the last hour, better known in some circles as Dr. Sky. You can check out his podcast, The Dr. Sky Experience. Just search it in any podcast app or go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, as always, it has been a real treat, incredibly informative and edutaining. Clear skies, and thank you, Frank, and look forward to our next Cosmic Conversation. Absolutely. We'll see you in two weeks. And we will get into New Hampshire next hour. If you have thoughts on the presidential race and where we're going, uh, you can give me a call, 800-848-9222. Until next hour, keep your eyes on the sky, but keep your feet on the ground.